I'm just walking down to see the tree lady and talk to her about this week's episode of Tree Lady Talks. And I can see she's prepping the ground to plant our plum tree to kick off National Tree Week, which starts on Saturday. Oh, looks like hard work. I'll just see if I can get her to spare a few moments. Hi, Sharon. Hi. Wow. <laughs> How big's the tree? Whew. I'm getting there. I just want to make sure the hole's big enough for this tree. It's a plum tree. How big's the tree? Just over a metre high. <laughs> in all seriousness, if you want to get involved in National Tree Week, you can. And one organisation that's sure to help is the Woodland Trust. Okay, sorry about this. She's just getting too involved. That's all right. That'll be fine. Just put it in there now. We've got to do this episode. Now, this week's episode is the biggest we've ever done. So much so, it's coming to you in two parts. Oh, the Woodland Trust. It's one of the top five environmental charities in the UK. And I think most people know something about its work. Once I started looking into it, and we started talking to some people who work there, we wanted to go on speaking to more and more. I was just blown away by the size of the charity. Yes, it's extraordinary what they do. They plant and protect trees and they protect woodlands, they restore ancient woodlands, they care for woods. Their decision-making is really informed, and they campaign and try and influence policy decisions at a national and local level, supported by volunteers. And the range of volunteer roles, well, I was astonished. And one of those volunteers is in the first part of this episode, Alex Lidis. But tell us who's kicking it off. Darren Moorcroft, the Chief Executive Officer of the Woodland Trust. Oh, wow, he loves his job and he's making such a difference with his brilliant team. And he has a music link as well, but we'll do that at the end of part two. Oh, yeah. We love a music link. It's astonishing that there are so many people who've got links with music who are in trees now. It's absolutely ridiculous. After Darren, I had a great conversation with Naomi Tilly, who's a lead campaigner for the Trust. Yes, and Naomi helps uh, local groups save local trees, doesn't she? As well as that, she gathers people's opinions on consultations from the government, such as a recent planning white paper. And I didn't realise that it's thousands upon thousands of people writing with detailed, informed opinions. Do you think you're going to actually have an explanation of the planning white paper, or are we going to leave that to government? Oh, I think this episode's long enough. Well, in that case, uh, without further ado, I think we should get it started. I should say that the uh, the band have got involved, and they've actually said to me they've written a special theme tune for the Woodland Trust. Now, I can't wait to hear it, but they've also said that because there's two parts to this episode, I'm going to have to pay them twice. So anyway... In the meantime, I think we'd better get on with the episode, otherwise we'll be here till the end of National Tree Week. Can I play the triangle again, please, now? Yes, 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 now. This is Tree Lady Talks, and I'm Sharon Durdent-Hollenby. All music and production is by Noel Durdent-Hollenby, and all views expressed by me or the interviewees are entirely personal. Welcome to Dr. Darren Moorcroft, CEO of the Woodland Trust. Thank you for joining us. Darren, could you please start off with your background and and how you came to be the CEO of the Woodland Trust? During my kind of career, I've worked at the RSPB, where I was, uh, at the time I left to join the Woodland Trust, I was looking after their UK conservation programs. And I got the opportunity to join the Woodland Trust uh, and outreach which was fantastic. And mm-hmm. up until I, the time where I got this job, I thought it was the best job in the Woodland Trust because uh, I got to buy land and I got to create additions to our estate, particularly or working with landowners. And you kind of can't beat that in terms of creating something that you could look back on and say, I had a part in doing it. It's such a large organisation. I don't think or I hope that nobody in the UK is in any doubt about the good work that you do. But what surprised me in researching for this podcast edition was really the breadth of the work that you do. So could you just very simply outline or really your mission statement of the charity? Okay, Uh, so I suppose in a sentence, it's to achieve a UK rich in native woods and trees for people and wildlife. And I suppose what that means is as an organisation, we are looking to, particularly in this day and age, to tackle the sort of twin crises that we find ourselves facing as humanity of climate change and kind of catastrophic nature loss. And I think one of the great things that uh, particularly native trees, uh, and what I would say in our mission, it's about being rich in native trees, not 
exclusively in native trees. But what they do do is uh, they provide all of the benefits that you get from trees uh, as a powerful weapon to fight climate change and to tackle nature loss because they can host so many species, other species and they can provide the clean air, they cleanse our water and all of those jobs that everybody who's interested in trees knows what these th- uh, things are do for us. You're a really large charity. You've got half a million members, is that right? Uh, we have over half a million members and supporters, so that support can range from uh, being a kind of fully paid regular regular member to helping us to campaign for, for positive change uh, and a whole range of other activities as well. But it's a really kind of privilege for me as to be kind of CEO of such uh, an organisation. We're the, we're the largest conservation woodland charity in the, in the UK. We're one of what's classed as the big four conservation organisations. Mm-hmm. But I think unlike perhaps the others, um, we, have a, we have a foot in both the kind of forestry camp and the conservation camp. Yes, and you have a very strong emphasis on how people can engage in woodlands at every level, simply walking through them or sponsoring, planting, um, looking at the conservation and, and the ecological value of those woods as well, which has really impressed me. So how many woods do you have? How many woods do you actually own as a charity? It's always a moving feast, but we have over a thousand uh, oh. because we're acquiring and and we also uh, lease land as well to uh, to local communities as well because, as you say, one of the one of the key uh, drivers for the organisation is to kind of build on that intrinsic value that people have for woods and trees and give them an opportunity to to be part of the solution themselves. Uh, I think one of the key things for us as an organisation is to do our work with people rather than for people. And sometimes we do it for people because we are in a position to be able to to achieve that. But across the thousand plus woods that we have in the UK I think the one thing I'm most proud of if there are if you can be one proud of one thing in such a diverse estate is that it's free access to all we recognize the benefits you know particularly what we've seen during this year of 2020 and the COVID-19 pandemic under lockdown people have been really valuing getting out into into nature and, and our estate has been open throughout that period and by being free to access rather than having to pay what we're not doing is we're not excluding anybody on their, you know, on their ability to pay. Because I'm firmly of the view that everybody deserves to enjoy the benefits of nature. And that's one of the things that the Woodland Trust is a kind of as a cornerstone of its activity. Yes, that whole idea of green equity is so critical. And if people want to know where they can find one of your woods, you've got a map, haven't you, on your website? The website is a fantastic resource, actually, for a whole range of, of different things. But it tells you where our woods are, but also where some other woods as well. So, you know, we have a thousand plus across the UK, but there might be a wood close to you and it may not be a Woodland Trust wood. And what we're interested in is helping people to get out and enjoy the woods and trees. It doesn't necessarily have to be one of ours. We'd like it to be one of ours. We'd like people to support us. But actually, the cause is even bigger than the organisation. So in 2017, you launched a charter for trees, woods and people, which really chimes with what we've talked about so far. What are the key aims of the charter? I think it's really to give people an opportunity to be engaged, to have a voice and to think about how they can interact with woods and trees and come up with those solutions which are of their own making, not necessarily just simply saying, this is how you should interact with the woods and trees agenda. And I think it's been a fantastic way in which we've brought people into, you know, into the club, for want of a better phrase. And it's one of those things as well that it doesn't explicitly have to be kind of Woodland Trust badged. It goes back to that point around, let's create an opportunity for people to engage. But then it's about then taking that on uh, and working with it and delivering for the cause rather than necessarily looking to just simply grow the Woodland Trust. Yes, I really get a sense of that. Um, Looking at the website, you've got some fantastic examples of different awards for different volunteers and and the breadth of the roles that they carry out. It really feels like you are a charity that really listens to its members and to members of the public. So you learn together on how to achieve these sort of triple elements of trees for for woods and wildlife and for people. I would say, you know, when... You know, one of the biggest risks that you can have in, in any organisation is if you think you know all the answers. You know, we're an evidence-based organisation, so we look at the research that's done by ourselves and, and by others, 
in formulating our policies and formulating our advice to individuals, to communities, to landowners. And in doing so, I think we get the best chance of the best success. But if we think that we actually have all the answers, then I think we'll be resting on our laurels and we'll probably be wrong. Yeah, that's the same with any organisation. So it's really heartening. And one of the shining examples of that is your work in Derbyshire with Mead Wood um, for young people. Tell us about um, how that's going and what it looks like on the ground. Well, I suppose this is one of those examples which, in terms of when I took over as Director of Estates and Outreach, if I look back on that time before coming CEO, it's one of the two things that I look back and think that's really important. Uh, and there was, uh, hopefully there was more than two things, but uh, the, the first of it is the UK's first young people's forest, which is at the, the site at Mead. So this is taking an open cast mine, which has been kind of restored and uh, putting onto that uh, and establishing about a quarter of a million trees and doing it with young people. It goes back to this point about actually creating a connection for people and giving them a role in tackling the climate and nature crisis in a very explicit way. And because of the nature of it being in an area where it was very heavily kind of mined, as a lot of mining communities there, quite a lot of the industries and roles of, and work have disappeared from those areas. And I think the value of nature in that context is even more heightened. So I, you know, I look back on the decision we took to start this program, and I think over the next de- you know decades to come, my hope is we'll see. The individual youngsters who planted their trees on the young people's forest coming back, bringing their kids and then playing a role and then bringing their kids. And that's the great thing about, you know, the woods and trees business. You know, we're, it's a long term business and sometimes you don't see the fruits of your labour, but you kind of know that the legacy that you're creating is going to last for a, a very long time. I absolutely agree. And that's my own experience as well of planting woods in the late 80s and early 90s and taking my grown up children to those. So um, and if people want to know more about Meadwood, they can actually listen to the Woodland Trust podcast with Adam Shaw. And there is an episode on that. But I think it just goes beyond um, listening to young people's ideas or volunteers ideas and actually physically doing the work. There is something about the doing as well as the achieving, isn't there, about being outside, getting your hands dirty, social interaction maybe with people you wouldn't normally speak to, and actually confidence building, don't you think? Absolutely. I, I suppose one of, the, one of my well-trodden phrases is that native trees are nature's most powerful weapon in the fight against climate change and nature loss. And one of the real reasons that I say that in comparison to all the very many valuable habitats that do a similar job is that the the act of planting a tree or preparing the ground for a tree I think adds another dimension and it's that connection with people and the opportunity for them to be involved and we know the health and well-being benefits of being outside and taking an active role and when we look at how people particularly young people have you know potentially suffering with things like mental health issues Mm. now perhaps more than ever giving them something which provides hope in the face of some very serious issues that we're dealing with, I think is crucial. And I think that's what trees can do. I agree, absolutely. It's something tangible that they can see grow and develop new skills. And actually, so many people are feeling isolated, not just because of the pandemic, even before that with our modern lifestyles. So I heartily support what you're doing there. And as I said, touched upon earlier, the range of work that the volunteers can do. It seems to me any skill set that you have, maybe you're not um, physically able to do any digging, but you could do, help with social media or you could help watch the wildlife in a certain area. Perhaps you could just outline some the diversity of the roles that volunteers can help with. It ranges on the estate from you know, the, the very active management to helping to make our, our sites attractive for visitors, like you know, from things like litter picking and dealing with, uh, with issues like that. So, as you say, going from helping on social media, helping with specialists who help with land agency work and, and legal work, and also to, in terms of surveys, helping with things like Nature's Calendar, which is long-standing uh, citizen science program where people are recording the kind of phenology of, of nature, able to show us when, you know, when the, the first leaf wood bursts are and, and also how does that change over time it's the longest longitudinal data set that we have in the in the uk and having it created 
and filled in by volunteers is fantastic because it means that the scale of the data set is huge and the opportunity to do the analysis that says, actually, climate change is happening and it's having this impact on our nature. How should we respond? I think is really important. And that's underpinned by volunteers, as is many of our other citizen science activities. Presumably you're working with other organisations to channel the results of that phenology study to sort of drill down into the data. And it provides absolute clarity and empirical evidence that the seasons are changing. So one of the big key partners for us in used and profiled nature's calendar has been the Met Office. So when they're you know, authoritatively talking about how climate's changing, how the weather's changing, having that data set around how nature is responding I think brings it to life for people as well. So you don't yeah. have to be a meteorologist to, to care, but you probably do care about whether the, the trees are losing their leaves earlier or the or the birds are out of sync with their food sources in order for them to whether they're going to be succeeding or not. And I think that's really that's really important. And we have other citizen science activities which are helping the forestry sector as well as the kind of conservation sector. So things like observatory, looking out for uh, pests and diseases, which we know are going to be crucial to keep an eye on, to monitor, to, to respond to. We've got volunteers out looking for pests and diseases in order to be that kind of early warning system. In the same way as we've got people recording the ancient trees that are out there and the ancient woodland through the ancient tree and ancient woodland inventories, which help us to make sure that those places are protected mm. because these are the crown jewels of our natural heritage. Absolutely. Before we go on to Ancient Woodlands, which um, incredible work you're doing there, but with Observatory, you're in partnership, aren't you, with Forest Research and FERA? You know, one of the things, one of the strengths of the organisation is the partnerships that it builds. Mm. And I think it goes back to the point about you not knowing all the, all the answers ourselves, but having an expertise which adds value. So the strategic partnerships that we build, I think, really helps us to collectively have impact in the places where we need to. So if somebody's listening to this podcast and they think, well, actually, I thought it was just about planting trees and I want to get involved with the Woodland Trust. I understand you actually have volunteer job roles advertised on the website. Is that the best way to to start being a volunteer? Uh, it is, absolutely. Because one of the things we want to ensure that we do is we, to give people meaningful tasks and meaningful actions to take. So in order for us to you know, frame that, what we do is we place on the website the vacancies that we've got for areas and roles that we really need help with. And how many volunteers do you have? Uh, it ranges, but it's uh, you know, two, two 3,000 across the UK. And that's not taking into account some of the citizen science uh, volunteers as well. So I think one of the things that we talk about a lot is the kind of Woodland Trust family and you can be part of the Woodland Trust family as a member of staff. You can be part of it as a, as a volunteer or you can be part of it as a supporter. All of that family is collectively working towards that UK rich in native woods and trees for people and wildlife. Gosh, that takes some organisation, but it's, it's such a powerful thing. It's really uplifting. Um, one of the other areas of work that I'm most familiar f- uh, with throughout my career is the work of the Ancient Tree Forum, which is part of the Woodland Trust. And again, the mapping on that is really great, where you can actually, you're encouraged to plot an ancient or veteran tree. I think many listeners will be aware of what an ancient and veteran tree is and why they're absolutely critical to conserve. But what is your statement? How does, what does the Woodland Trust do to really highlight their vulnerability and international importance? You know, in terms of ancient woodland and ancient trees, I think, you know, we are very clear that you know these are the crown jewels of the of the natural world in the UK. We can't replace them. We are losing them. We are fighting as an organisation about a thousand uh, cases currently, the most that we've ever had to. And we see that that loss is in stark contrast to the recognition that these places are the most biodiverse habitats in the UK, and they are capturing carbon at a time when we need our mature trees to capture. To capture carbon as well. So we're fighting in campaigning on a, on a number of fronts. What the ancient woodland inventory does and the ancient tree inventory is pinpoint where these key places are, because if you don't know where they are, then you're very, it's very difficult to then uh, protect them. Um, and we're, you know, we're fighting very hard to make sure they're recognised in the planning system, because that planning system is the kind of first and last line of defence for our ancient woods and trees. And if that is detrimental and allows for uh, unsustainable infrastructure or development, we could lose part of our natural heritage in a way which we'll never get back. 
Absolutely, it cannot be replaced. You cannot replace an ancient semi-natural woodland with the same number of trees. It's it's far, far more than that. And where are these threats coming from? And you say, say a thousand, a thousand ancient and semi-natural woodlands are under threat right now. The numbers are unbelievable. There will be the traditional uh, sort of development, wanting to sort of cut them down and, or, and build on. You will be aware of, your listeners will be aware of, of big infrastructure programs like HS2, where you know we are we're seeing 108 ancient woodlands under threat from that just one one program mm-hmm. of work, um, and we know that we're facing in the UK you know the potential for an investment of 27 billion pounds in new roads. Mm-hmm. Now that's a you know it's a huge threat, and those are the sort of traditional ones. We're also seeing potential threats from ammonia dis- uh, deposition from intensive chicken farms, and that so that one planning. Uh, proposal to put in a, you know, a very intensive chicken farm could have, you know, create the ammonia, which could then target and threaten a number of ancient woodlands all in one go. So it's less about the individual footprint. It's more about what's in the surrounding area. Yes, the all important, very large buffer that's needed because it's all about soil health, really, isn't it? If you start mucking about the soil health and the mycorrhizae fungi and all the soil flora, then you know, it has a huge, huge impact. And I know that the Woodland Trust has responded to the recent white paper on planning reform, which we could probably talk about all day. But uh, in the interest of time, we'll move on from that. So tell me about the big climate fight back. What form does that take? Uh, well, this is, the, I suppose, we're in the second year of the big climate fight back. And I think it's a really important programme of work for us. It's, uh, we, you know, we have announced this autumn that in the next five years, we want to establish uh, 50 million new trees in, in the UK by 2025. So, and to give you some context, since the, the Woodland Trust came into being in 1972, this planting season, we will have hit our 50th millionth tree. So we're going to replicate what we've done since 1972 in the next five years. And I think that shows both the scale of ambition for the for the organisation, but also the scale of need for the for the cause. And we're engaging people to to play a part. So to be part of planting a tree, to campaign for the uh, the resources from government to uh, to underpin the establishment of the thirty thousand hectares that we're going to need each year for uh, between now and 2020, uh, 2050 to to meet the climate change committee's uh, target of moving woodland cover to. Uh, from 13% to 19%. Yes. And it's, I think it's a really, for us, it's a really good way of galvanising people's efforts so that they can see that their effort, however small, adds up to something much bigger, and that's the big climate fight back. And you say, however small, what's really good is that um, an individual householder can buy a little pack of trees from the Woodland Trust, or if you're a landowner, you can get involved with the Moore Wood Scheme. Um, or if you're a school, you can have a school pack and you have a, a school or green schools award. So it's really at every level. So I think sometimes it, people at home feel quite daunted that they say, well, I've only got a tiny garden or maybe not a garden at all. And they feel they can't get involved. But at every single level, people can get involved with this huge tree planting scheme, even if it's just financial support. And talking of ambition, you've just bought a mountain. Uh, indeed. <laughs> So, so when I when I said earlier the uh, the two things that I'm most proud of when my my previous role, um, the second and the, so so the young people's forest was one and buying the organisation's first mountain is the is the second. Uh, ben Shieldegg up in the uh, in the north of Scotland is just a fantastic site. It's fantastic for the ancient woodland that it holds. It's fantastic for the opportunity to to expand it and create new woodland that will uh, buffer that ancient woodland. And it's fantastic for the wildlife that's already there and that will benefit in the future. It's one of those places where probably not everybody in the UK will ever get to. But I think it's one of those places where people will realise that it's being protected and looked after and will take an awful lot of pleasure and, and solace from the fact that it is. And it's really about preserving the granny pines and getting that genetic continuity of those really important pine trees on the mountain but yes not everybody can go there but with your street tree program you know that's a lot more accessible with 80% of the population being urban so really it gets to the heart of the city as well as a fairly remote Scottish mountain. One of the real benefits of when we're working at the landscape scale so one of our major programs of work is the Northern Forest that runs from Liverpool to Hull 
and that's and that's taking the the sense that uh, the role of trees goes from you know the street where people live to the park where people will go and play mm-hmm. to the to the fields that the farmers will be uh, be managing in the rural areas to the to the big woodland blocks and I think all of that contributes to a northern forest that's, that basically spans across the the north of England and connects with each other and with the people that live there. And in the 20 years that you've been involved with the Woodland Trust, albeit in a, a different role before, have you noticed a increase in understanding of the general public on why trees are important? And also, are people beginning to understand that woodlands need to be managed? I think the, I suppose, if I'm honest, the step change happened has, has probably happened in the last 12 to 18 months. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we saw at the end of 2019 that almost the, an arms race about tree planting for the government manifesto or the, mm. the political manifestos in the run up to the general election. And that was all on the basis that people had gained a heightened awareness of climate change and the role that trees can play in, in tackling that. And, and I think that's only, only expanded and increased during this period that we've been through with the dealing with the lockdown and pandemic. So I think there's been a gradual increase in, of, uh, of understanding. But then I think there's been a big spike. And I think one of our key, key opportunities uh, not to lose as a sector is to hold on to that and, and make sure that it, it carries us forward. I can talk about kind of riding the wave of public, uh, public awareness. Mm-hmm. I think we have to shape that wave and make sure that it's delivering the kind of benefits that we know that uh, our trees can. Because as the big climate fight back says, every tree counts. It really does. So, Darren, can you provide some facts and figures about the Woodland Trust and how it works? Uh, so the organisation benefits from the support of a huge number of people giving a small amount of money. Our kind of annual sort of turnover and income is between 55, uh, 60 million this year. Uh, we hope that to continue to, to grow. That allows us to do, obviously, all the good work that we, that we can. So lots of individuals giving through their membership. We have uh, income coming through legacies because people obviously like to to leave uh, bequests in the, of their, through their will to create new woodlands or look after and protect woodlands that are special to them. And then we also have grants and uh, uh, and charitable trusts supporting us as well as corporate partners. Either we are operating through carbon, through the Woodland Carbon Code, or through engagement with them to uh, engage their employees in woodland uh, and woodland management. And I think the the diversity of that income stream is really important to us because to go and tree people need it um, rather than being in too, in too great a degree by any one funding partner or funding stream. So I think it allows the organisation to be as good as it, as it needs to be. Finally, what is your dream scenario? Ooh, that's a, uh, a challenging one. I think if you'd have asked me uh, 12 months ago, I would have said it would be a government that recognised the, the value of trees and wanted to really upscale them in the in the landscape across all of what they do so we're kind of there now so my dream scenario in terms of what will the uk look like in 10 20 30 years time i think it will be a uk which has a really strong relationship with its woods and trees it has a really strong relationship because they are close to people and they are delivering for wildlife so it's good quality it's well managed it's really appreciated. As a dream scenario, if we get to that and the Woodland Trust can play a role and hopefully I can play a small role personally, then I think that would be a fantastic dream to, to turn into a reality. Thank you. It's one we all share. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. That's nice to talk to you. Welcome to Naomi Tilly. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Tell me a little bit about yourself, Naomi, and what your job entails. So I've been at the Trust for two years now, and I'm in the campaigning team, and I lead our policy and engagement campaigns. So it's it's my job to work with the government affairs team and the external affairs world and engage our supporters in what they're doing and to enable supporter voices to have an impact and be heard on that, that for, by decision makers. It's been a really heightened year for trees and woodlands and policy makers. Perhaps you could just outline some of the policies that you've been looking at and responding to. One of the main policies that is really specifically on trees this year has been the England Tree Strategy, which is the document that will kind of define how we manage, look after, protect um, and create trees for the next 20 years. The government's writing it at the moment 
um, and in the summer they consulted on it so that was kind of one one of the times we reached out to our supporters and asked them to share their views it's our role to help those voices be heard and to enable their responses to the, the strategy um, consultation. So fingers crossed that will come to fruition and be a really, really strong strategy that really does deliver. We won't know now until the spring, I don't think. And how many people responded to you approximately? So we had 3,000 people who took part in that campaign. Um, but what those 3,000 people did was write really detailed responses. So we've compiled them into a 400-page book, so quite like a novel of, of comments from our supporters. And we've made that into something beautiful that we've then posted to the key decision makers. Their decisions will impact what the actual strategy is like in the end. It's such a good idea because I know that individual people can and no doubt have responded to the government paper as well as other interested parties like the Institute of Charter Foresters and the Abora Cultural Association. I think that having an organisation like the Woodland Trust adds gravitas to those members of the public's comments and a, a really like friendly, informed, umbrella organisation to sort of gather them all and produce a document. The government themselves separated the consultation into four key areas. So one of them was about having a native woodland creation targets, making sure that our native trees are part of that. Um, another area that came up a lot was having UK sourced and grown trees, um, which is really important in terms of protecting the trees that we've got because that reduces the threat to tree health, making sure that when the government is funding trees, all those trees have never left the country. Um, mainland Britain they sourced and grown here which hopefully will reduce um, the impact of diseases like ash dieback it stops them arriving in the country in the first place. Oh it's such an important issue I discussed that with John Tucker actually in, in another segment of this podcast we need locally grown trees and another really pertinent policy that you've had to look at which is going to be incredibly important for the countryside and the townscape um, it's a planning paper. Were you involved with that at all as an organisation? In response to the coronavirus, really, the government is looking at how planning works in England again. And they've posed a massive series of changes to how the planning system works. At the moment, those proposals haven't mentioned ancient woods and trees once. Um, but actually, we, we use the planning system day in and day out to protect woods and trees. Planning is such a hot topic and as a charity you really do enable community groups who are concerned about local planning applications. Planning applications are one of the, the main ways that we know that woods and trees are threatened when someone wants to put a development where our ancient woods or an ancient tree might be. Community groups often alert us to those or individuals and we've got volunteers that um, look through those applications for us and help identify where there are woods and trees under threat. I'm guessing you had a great response from your um, your members and your supporters on your consultation to the planning paper as well. More than 9,000 people took part in that campaign. What's really important is that we're going to need those people with us the long haul. It's kind of that was the first consultation, but we're expecting it to last years probably by the time that we get to the end of that process of, yeah, 9,000 people took part with that in response to the first initial consultation, but we are going to need them again. It's really rewarding knowing that they're behind us. And it's so good to have that diversity of opinion as well, expressed differently by lots of different people thinking um, of their own point of view and distilling that into something powerful. But as well as these sort of national government consultations, I understand that you also get involved with local campaigns as well. Yeah, so another role that our threat detector volunteers do um, is find those the local plans. So this is kind of the step before a planning application um, when a, a council is thinking about how it's going to manage the, the area as a whole um, and they submit local plans and they can consult on what those plans should be, um, help make sure that they aren't going to threaten ancient woodland further down the line and that um, they're planned with trees and woods at the heart of them rather than being a secondary consideration. How do you actually support these community groups? Or does it vary on what their requirements are? We support lots of different groups in lots of different ways and it does really depend on what, what they need. One example would be um, in Swansea where the group there is really active and have mobilised around protecting their, their local street trees. What Woodland Trust can do is bring that expertise, guidance and support because it's it's quite intimidating as a community group taking on the big decision makers and the, the council, whoever it might be, and, and holding them to account and making sure that trees are protected can be quite a scary thing to do and having the support of an organisation like the Wooden Trust can be really valuable. 
we do that in lots of different ways for for different groups. So obviously you have some great success with campaigns, not only with the national campaigns and that you're drawing so many different people's points of view together, also with local campaigns, but obviously not every campaign is going to be successful. What are your barriers to successful campaigning at a local level? It's a really good question. I think that there's the barriers come in different shapes and sizes. I think people in in positions of power in local government and national government have lots of different um, competing interests. Woods and trees aren't always at the top of that, that list. I think we believe that you can embed woods and trees and protect the trees on existing street trees, for example, and still develop an, um, an area and make it really lovely for people to live in. And actually, it's, it's a win-win to keep the trees because it improves the quality of life of people living there. Sometimes we only find out about something too late and we are unaware that there's a, a threat to a tree until the decision has already been made. Sometimes there might not be a will in government or in that local decision-making body to protect that tree. It's not a priority enough. When people are in a campaign group, Something really, really matters to them and they're frustrated, hence forming the group. And emotions can run really, really high. But I'm guessing as a charity, you have those skills to just sort of focus. Is, is that been your experience? It is our role to see that bigger picture, to help and support and be the voice for woods and trees. But as a charity, what we can do that potentially the local campaigners don't always have the platform to be able to do is do some of that inside track work we have to to follow rules to start with and we're governed by the charity commission rules we can bring something different to the table it's about bringing people on side sometimes and i guess also um as an ngo you see many different types of campaigns and you probably pick up some really good tips from some campaigns that you can pass on to others so that method really really worked in that situation and you must therefore have a lot of expertise in-house yeah, absolutely. We're always learning. Um, people on the ground, community groups are teaching us things all the time. But yeah, we're learning as much as, as they are half the time. There are 160,000 people who have taken a campaign action with us in the last two years. It's amazing to be supported by that many people. That's phenomenal. Do you see the role of campaigning growing and widening? And so you have more campaigns to fight? I mean, hopefully not. And also the breadth of what you're campaigning about increasing as well. The next few years are going to be massive for environmental campaigning, for trees and woods, but for nature, for climate. Um, there's a lot of big issues that we're facing. Something that's become really clear in the last few years is how much we have to listen um, to young people. They've been at the forefront in the last couple of years and we need to keep listening to them. They're really making sure that NGOs are stepping up to the plate, really, and um, we need to keep listening to them, um, working with them, enabling and facilitating their voices. We can't leave it all to them. There's, it's not just down to young people, but they are certainly showing us the way. Who could have predicted the climate strikes? It's been so inspiring, hasn't it? It had to come from the young people and it's been amazing. Tell us about the power of the Tree of the Year and how that is also a campaign this year in England. So the Tree of the Year is a campaign we have been running for a number of years now and it is an opportunity for the public to nominate their favourite trees. Um, they're then shortlisted and then the public vote on their top. So we, we shortlist 10 trees and then the public vote. Um, and there's a competition runs in England, Scotland and Wales. And this year the public voted for the happy man tree which is a street tree in london the decision has been made that it's going to be felled as part of our housing redevelopment mm. it's a really challenging case because in many ways the housing development is really groundbreaking it has a lot of green space in, involved it's high quality social housing so it ticks a lot of boxes and is really needed for the area but this tree was needing to be felled for this development and it's broken the hearts of the community. It's noticed by children walking to school. It's a really, really valuable tree. It's gone on to win the hearts and minds of the country and it's been voted for Tree of the Year for 2020. Council have said that had they known at the beginning, they could have designed the development differently. But now at this point, it would be too much of a delay to the development to redesign it and save the tree. It's an example of why we need trees to be incorporated into planning for redevelopment and development right from the start. They need to be right at the heart of everything that we're doing rather than an afterthought because 
it's one tree, but it, it's a case that we, we see cases like it across the country all the time. It's a really good example of um, a lot of development work where, whereby if the right consultants, the right specialisms are instructed early in the process, such as ecologists and arboriculturalists and landscape architects, it, it can make a massive difference. And it's interesting to hear that that tree could be saved. And we've got an earlier episode, the development special, where we have different specialisms talking about that it's good to know that that development near the happy man tree is going to be really a good quality development with lots of green space and trees but it takes you know a long time for trees to enter people's hearts and minds just because of their size so a really interesting case and i just wonder if anything's been done with the timber from that tree when it's felled the tree of the year competition comes with a bit of a prize money award um which will we hope enable the local um, community there to celebrate that tree in the way that they choose um, something they could do with it if they felt that that's what they wanted to was to use the timber to bench or something like that it's up to them how they they use that money to celebrate the tree and finally what's your dream scenario i think my dream scenario would be to work my way out of a job um kind of as all campaigners um, really in that if if i work my way out of a job it means that trees are at the heart of everything that we do they're at the heart of decision making the heart of policy the nature crisis and the climate crisis have been solved so if I'm out of a job then that's a a good thing well thank you so much for your time that's been a pleasure so welcome to Alex Lidis thank you so much for joining us my pleasure Alex tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with the Woodland Trust I took early retirement a few years ago. I was a general manager of a manufacturing plant in Bolton. I had the opportunity to take early retirement, which I did. And I always loved the outdoors. I was a keen walker prior to retiring. I then started to volunteer with Crow Irwell Valley Volunteers, which is Bolton, Manchester, Salford area. That volunteering group was wound up when the cuts hit in 2008. So everything went quiet in that respect. And then I heard that the Trust were keen on buying a large section of land, which the Crowell Valley organisation covered, known as the Smiddles Estate. So I wrote to them and wrote to them and said, you need volunteers, you'll need volunteers. Pestered them, pestered them. Then they, they kept replying to their credit. We're not in the position yet to take on any volunteers, but the soon route. So I'd, I'd give it about a day and then write again. Yeah. <laughs> And eventually, I became volunteer number two. Someone got in before you then. Who was volunteer number one? Surely somebody wasn't writing more letters than you. I found out that he was a leaflet distributor, so I let him off with that. But he's a nice chap, so I I do speak to him now and again. So tell us about what you do as a volunteer. I have to look at this from time to time. It's um, a list of our roles. And these have grown over the two or three years that trust has become established on the Swivels Estate, which is about 1,700 acres, 600 and odd hectares. And it's an old area, popular around Bolton, Chorley, Wigan, Manchester area for walking and all sorts of other activities. But we, as a group of volunteers, cover Woodland Working Group, a Woodland Warden, an event, event volunteer, guided walk leader and a practical group leader. Can I ask you a bit about the actual landscape itself? Is it all wooded or is it a mixture of woodland and open ground? It's a mixture of woodland, heathland, valleys, gullies, rivers. It's beautiful. You should come and visit us. Oh, I will do once we're allowed. Yes, I really do want to come up to the area because I just love that part of the country. One of the the good aspects recently is the Woodland Trust built a new car park right on the estate. Prior to that was a small car park down just on the edge of Bolton really so this new car park we do just to give you some background we perform stewarding duties at the weekends and that's act as stewards to just till it gets established people coming now coming to visit the area from far and wide didn't know it existed you know from the sort of Liverpool area North Lancashire South Cheshire that sort of area so how many volunteers work in this particular site how many people have you got working together we've got Probably about eight or nine. There is a core that tend to do most of the work, four or five. And myself, a couple of buddies of mine, Pete and Lawrence, we were with, we were all together in the Cool Irwell Valley volunteers. So we 
moved on to the Woodland Trust. There's another couple of guys that are regular and um, we get stuck into anything that we're throwing at. So you've been involved with this site for the Woodland Trust since 2015. How has the landscape changed in that time or is it just maintained? Yeah, it is maintained. There are improvements to footpaths, fencing, basic infrastructure. But the biggest aspect that people notice more than anything is the number of trees that have been planted. Five-year plan was, I think, for 150,000 trees. I think we've got to about 80 or 90 now. So that's the thing that people notice the most. We have a mixture of birch, beech, oak, alder, holly. And we would now be coming up to our community event time where we're different groups from local communities get involved with the tree planting, which is extremely popular. And it's a, a great period for uh, all different all different scouts, uh, Asian communities. I, I could just go on and on for um, police, cadets, and it's really well organised. It's trust organised it really well. We take them to the site in minibuses, provide shelter if, if it's bad weather, tea, coffee, that sort of thing. So one of the really nice aspects of it is watching the kids plant them. They absolutely love it. It's brilliant, isn't it? And I also love the fact that these type of planting events and sort of conservation task events, you literally get all different walks of life together in a way that you wouldn't do in any other thing that you do. You're going to get the sort of the old learning from the young and all sorts of different groups of people. It's absolutely heartwarming. So have you found in the last sort of year or so when trees have become so much higher up the political agenda, have you found that more people want to get involved with the site? Yes. And as you rightly point out, trees are moving higher and higher up the, the agenda in all in all ways. And um, one of the things we like to point out is that uh, we looked it up and we, we discovered that uh, a mature tree can absorb 22 kilograms of CO2 per annum. People like to remember that particular fact. Yeah, it gives people a sense of control, really, doesn't it? When things feel like they're going crazy around them and climate change is escalating, they feel that they can do something practical and, and learn those skills as well. I wonder, have you learned anything from being a volunteer in the Woodland Trust? I have to be honest, I always enjoy being around trees or in wood, wooded areas, but I've learned so much more about trees and the life of trees and quite a spooky aspect of them. Yeah. Maybe they maintain their area and control, you know, with all the, all the connections underground talking to each other, communicating, informing each other of what's happening. It's that chatter beneath the soil, you know, it's really becoming absolutely. widely understood. It's absolutely yeah. fascinating. Presumably you've learned new skills as well, as well as learning about trees themselves. We did have some skills with the Crow Valley. We were involved in tree, tree yeah. work and that sort of things. But um, because it's more to do with the planting and the type of planting and the type of soil, the time of year that all these activities can be carried out. And presumably new friendships as well? Yes, very close um, connections with one or two trees. Any problems with antisocial behaviour in the woods? One of, the, one of our issues has always been uh, camping. We don't allow it on the site because of the danger aspect of it, i.e. camping, fires, you know, litter, that sort of thing. If we find people mm. camping there, we, we will ask them to move on. And to be fair, they always have done. A couple of years ago, I don't know if you're aware, we had quite a big fire on the estate. and um, Oh, yes, I remember that. We, we used that as a tool to uh, point out to people the, the dangers of camping and what, what can happen um, if a fire gets out of control. Antisocial behaviour, not really. No, camping is a big issue. Some of the car parks can have some antisocial behaviour at night, but the trust car park is locked up at a decent time and well-maintained, regularly litter-picked. And um, try and present to the public the, the the image of the trust caring about the car park, not just providing a parking area and then leaving people to it, but generally having a presence on site so that people know that the areas care about. And if people have any questions, they can talk, talk to people and just have um, a connection. And so, one of the things you talked about was the guided walks. Is that something that you personally get involved in? Yes, I enjoy it immensely. What sort of groups of people come for the guided walk? Well, quite a mixture, really, because we're quite proud to say that we know the area as well as anybody and all the, all the secret little footpaths and out-of-the-way places as well. So 
uh, we work with and regularly get people um, who've been walking the area for years and discover a path on one of our walks that they didn't know existed. We do have an interest in local history, industrial, anecdotal and general history of the area in terms of how back who first owned the estate. We also try to lay or put to one side uh, some of the urban myths that have developed as well. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. The education of of what how to be in the countryside and, and the good it can do for us. So presumably you encourage other people to become a member and also volunteer for the Woodland Trust. We do, we do, because that's one of the things that we do when we're on, if we're on we do regular patrols around the estate. Just a bit, have a presence on there. People have any questions they want to, want to discuss with the trust or indeed complaints as well, which there are a number of. We we have, I don't know how many, but lots of people have volunteered as a result of a conversation with us when they find out what the trust and how the trust is always looking for volunteers and well accommodating and welcoming to them well you obviously absolutely love your experience of being a volunteer for the woodland trust and it sounds like they really couldn't do without you volunteers like you are really integral to the success of running of the sites how does it feel to be a volunteer for the woodland trust how do they treat you the woodland trust treats us extremely well the woodland trust regularly does let us know how much we're appreciated, the time, the hours and time that people give to the Woodland Trust. We all know that it's appreciated and thankful for. The management in place at the moment is absolutely spot on. Alex, how can people get involved with the Woodland Trust? Well, via the website, uh, they can get in touch locally. The office is in, in based about a mile from where I live, um, in Smithers Hall in Bolton. The main avenue is um, contact a volunteer. If you see a volunteer on site, go to the Facebook page or the website and all the information is on there. Fantastic. I've, I want to retire now and be a volunteer for the Woodland Trust. <laughs> I will do one day. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for your time. That's a great insight and being a volunteer. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to meet you as well. Listen to the <laughs> I do love the fact that Alex was the second volunteer. People like Alex are a total backbone of managing our conservation spaces. What a fantastic guy. Interesting what Naomi was saying about young people because there is a link between what she was talking about, about comments she gets from young people it leads into very nicely the um, the comment that we're going to get from uh, somebody representing a school, Olivia Ransom, who actually talks to the young people and hears what they say. And coming up in part two of Tree Lady Talks, the Woodland Trust special. John Tucker, Director of Woodland Outreach. Then we have David Rose, a farm ambassador from Farm Eco. Joe Coles, who leads the Woodland Trust urban programme in the UK. And finally, Olivia Ransom, a teacher at Poplar Farm School. Join us for part two of this Woodland Trust special where you'll hear the Tree Lady Talks band perform their specially composed theme for the Woodland Trust. And you never know if we get enough likes on Facebook, Sharon might even be featured playing the Count Basie part, The Triangle.